Great science fiction is about more than escapist fantasies of starships and exotic aliens fighting battles in distant galaxies beyond our solar system. In the proper hand, science fiction can help us reimagine our own reality in subversive ways, provide insightful social commentary about the real world we inhabit every day. Augmented, Volume 1, is a new collection of great science fiction stories that invite us to take a closer look at ourselves and the world around us. Our contributors examine the futility of war, the dangers of xenophobia, the importance of caring for our environment, the risks associated with technology, the rise of artificial intelligence, and they remind us of all the ways we can lose our humanity if we're not careful. These 19 stories are thrilling, mind-bending, frightening, thought-provoking, and sometimes hilarious snapshots of life in at least one of our possible futures. We hope you find something to love about all of them. Augmented, Volume 1, a short story anthology of great science fiction stories available now on Amazon. Welcome to Reframing Our Stories, the podcast. This podcast is about provocative conversations with beautiful thinkers about topics that matter and the stories that have helped them reframe their lives. Grab something cozy or put on your walking shoes and let's reframe. Welcome back to Reframing Our Stories. I am so glad you're here. It's been such a delight to get to talk to my guests today, and I think you will find that you will learn a lot from them. I would love if you would be willing to share this podcast with some of your friends, because you know, what do we need to talk more about in our world, but uh, we need to talk more about sex and often the hard topic of religion. Sex and religion, those are the things that make people uncomfortable, but it's also the areas of our lives that are impacted the most uh, in ways that we of how we feel about ourselves. And so if you could go ahead and share an episode with a friend, or if you could rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast we would absolutely love that. It's a great joy for us to do this podcast. I want to be able to provide you with more stories that have been reframed. One of the things that I know as an adult, now that we're adulting, it's that I feel like the one thing that is to be true of all adults is that we are deconstructing the blocks we were given in childhood that no longer make sense. And are no longer offering a dwelling in which we want to reside. For many, that has been in religion. And as you have heard on my podcast, I talk about that frequently. This rings true for Julia Postema and Jeremiah Gibson as well. Julia and Jeremiah are partners who are also ASEX certified sex therapists. They both grew up in the evangelical church and are spending their time exploring how many are taking the same path as them and deconstructing and asking the questions that repair the harm that many experienced around sexuality from the church. Julia and Jeremiah co-host a podcast called Sex Vangelicals. In this podcast, they explore how people can rebuild relationships, learn about intimacy, and let go of shame while unpacking sexuality. Jeremiah and Julia, thank you so much for joining me today. 
Thank Thanks you. This us. is exciting. I love, um, we already got to meet because I, full disclosure, was on their podcast. <laughs> and <laughs> we had such a lovely time. We wanted to do it again. Uh, but I love the work that you're doing because clearly so many people need this and so many people need to talk about the way that the messages we received from church, where we are going to learn about God and the creator and how we can fully show up in this world. It's hard when that stuff is harming and when that is taking away some of the integral parts of who we are in terms of our sexuality, in terms of understanding intimacy. So I'm curious, when was the moment for you both individually when what you were taught in your evangelical faith didn't ring true to what you experienced in your own life? I didn't have one specific moment. I Mm -hmm. had many series of moments that lasted (laughs) multiple years, which started in college for me, going to Mm -hmm. a Christian college. So I was raised in a highly fundamentalist religious group uh, with three pillars, my Baptist church, my Christian school, and my Christian camp. I went Mm -hmm. to a Christian college in Michigan, and it was there that I learned other ways of understanding the world. So primarily in my sociology and social work classes in my freshman year, that's when the threads started to unravel, or I like to think about it like a Jenga tower Mm -hmm. for any people who have played Jenga, that those first, even first few weeks of college started poking holes in my Jenga tower, specifically around race, specifically around sexual orientation and specifically around gender. Did we not have something I want to remember, Julia, in common with the Michigan college? Did you go to Hope? Yes. Yeah. So I went to Calvin. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's what I was remembering. I was like, wait a minute, we have something in common. Yes. The more liberal rival, you were the more liberal rival. (laughs) But I, I, uh, I feel like in those, in some of the classes I took at Hope, really, like the women's studies and gender studies and psychology was actually when I was like, wait a minute. Yeah. So similar in that sense. Yeah. The wheels started turning fast for me. So I, as many people lost the faith that I grew up with at a Christian school. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. I'm also thinking Kara about your question. Mm -hmm. from the perspective of what did I learn from evangelical communities that Mm -hmm. I grew up in and, and not all of it was bad, right? But a lot Mm -hmm. of it was really good. A lot of it was really valuable. Um, The value of kindness, the value of compassion, Mm -hmm. uh, the value of sacrifice. Those were all values that were very much taught to me and my church community. What the, the, the moment for me individually, at least the first moment for me individually was when I saw the ways that my church community didn't practice those um, Mm. amongst themselves. So uh, I'm not a child of divorce. My parents are still married. I am a child of divorce from the perspective that my church closed their doors. My church Mm. divorced uh, Mm -hmm. when I was 20 and they divorced over the quote role of women. Interesting. I roll. Love Um, the language of that. Yeah. Yikes. (laughs) Up for uh, debate. Up for debate. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Can they be allowed in the doors? Do they exist? What do they do? <laughs> Just, like, Just they. They, exactly. 
<laughs> um, and and like, and and my parents were were pretty annoyed, I think, by the the conflict that was happening too. Uh, even though they have like different beliefs now about uh, gender and, and gender variance than, than I do. Uh, but to see for the first time, uh, 16, 17, 18, a lot of the conflict happening, you know, being also being a person for whom like, I felt, I felt most confident in church spaces. Mm. I was, mm-hmm. um, you know, my, I was acknowledged. I was appreciated the most. Uh, in in church spaces, so I got stuck then in this bind between like the adults around me are acting like idiots, mm-hmm. and yet I am also in this space like this is the space where I feel like a sense of a sense of purpose, a sense of belonging. Um, so 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 trying to navigate that, I think, contributed to me staying in church spaces for a much longer time after mm-hmm. uh, I was in high school. So I think I've like, I just identify with both of you on that. Like, I feel like church for me too, was also a space where I felt acknowledged, where I felt seen and where I could actually explore as a female being in a leadership position. Cause I was not, I was in the ELCA Lutheran church. Mm-hmm. And so, um, where they, you know, have women pastors and things like that. Uh, there is a it, role for women. There is a role it, for and women. And it does include pastorship. It's great. <laughs> great. Good job, ELCA. <laughs> but I still had, you know, growing up in the 90s with the purity culture and still, you know, all of that was really ingrained, I think, in the culture too, in which I lived in. But it was also, I feel like at Hope College, where I started to question so many things that were happening around me and like seeing the chapel service and then also recognizing that some people were going into this chapel service just to like meet girls and <laughs> be like, <laughs> let me see like who I can hook or like, who could I be with? And um, it was almost like people were um, showing one another up and how they worshiped. It was like, real yeah, weird. I was going to say, I love Kara, how you almost said hooked up. And, 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 and there's a form of hooking up it's a form it's culture. like the christian hooking up yeah. experience right that's hilarious yeah i yeah. was like this is super weird like yeah. it's like you're trying to find your forever partner but you're like right. that girl's cute come sit with me being my wing that's person right. <laughs> it's right. like real weird oh look at him worship yeah. oh it's so hot <laughs> look at him raise his hands <laughs> so, it was so very strange <laughs> But also true, sadly. Yeah. So. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) I can just think of so many iterations of that, not just at Christian college, but in so many church groups that I've been a part of. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how did you shift then? Because since we were just talking a little bit about purity culture, how did you shift from living in this purity culture and like having your Jenga pieces kind of start coming out to then going into studying sexuality, right? Because that's, that can be for many people, a big jump to be like, what? Yeah. (laughs) What was interesting for me is that I started studying sexuality while I was still technically living in purity culture. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I was, I was employed (laughs) by a church Mm -hmm. uh, for about five years. So, so my initial, so, so my twenties, my career of choice was music ministry. 
Um, and so I worked at a couple of different churches and um, began to study therapy in my in my mid twenties, and and that became kind of my main uh, form of income, mm-hmm. and, and way that I spent most of my time. But uh, when I moved to Boston, uh, the church that I went to like knew that I did uh, music ministry and was looking for as a small church looking for music minister and said, "Hey Jeremiah, do you want to do this?" I'm like, "Okay, fine." <laughs> um, so so five years later. Uh, I'm still like a uh, paid staff and getting paid to to lead worship at this church. and And so it was it was during that time that I began studying sexuality mm-hmm. um, and studying sexuality as an extension of couples therapy. Okay. Um, so my boss uh, and a few of my colleagues are sex therapists. And my boss pulls me aside one time, one one day, and says, "Hey, Jeremiah, I know you're interested in couples therapy. I think it's really important for you to be to um, get some additional studying this in this to uh, make this a specialty. Um, I'm opening up a sex therapy training program. I'd love to have you be a part of this. I'll subsidize it for you. Hmm. Uh, I'm like, okay, great. That sounds good." Mm-hmm. No idea what I'm getting into right. uh, the, the, the first class. <laughs> and, and and the first two, three, four months of classes just completely blew my mind mm-hmm. and blew my mind from the perspective of, oh, like everything that not just that I've been taught about sexuality or not taught about sexuality is completely off, mm-hmm. but also the ways that I'm practicing sexuality are, are like not what I want to do or not who I want to be. Right. And so uh, I began like, talking about that with, with my ex talking about with that, with the church. Well, so, um, the church wasn't too happy about this. Um, Mm -hmm. I ended up getting fired about a year, uh, into, um, my program, um, and fired for because, because you were studying it. And because I was talking about it, talking about it in like public spaces. Okay. Uh, and then also that, that contributed to my divorce as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. that, that the more, uh, that I tried to talk about sexuality uh, with with my ex, who also grew up in purity culture, the more anxiety, the more um, the more tension that brought to the relationship. Sure. Um, because while I was learning about sexuality, she wasn't, mm-hmm. and so we have this this big uh, uh, discrepancy in in like engagement in sexuality on mm-hmm. top of all the the, the gender bullshit that uh, women particularly have to deal with right. um, in purity culture. It was too much. It ended up breaking mm. the the, the uh, marriage as well. So um, I kind of got, I, I say, I kind of got kicked out of purity culture um, <laughs> and, and making the decision to, personally speaking, to not go back. Mm-hmm. I, I'm mm-hmm. very interested in studying it though and to understanding uh, more of how it works uh, because mm-hmm. Julia, much like you said, and we've talked about, uh, I mean, Kara, three of us have talked about um, has, has caused a ton of pain, uh, mm-hmm. to hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Americans. Right. Yeah. yeah. My story was different. I you didn't get kicked out. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Okay. I am also divorced. I got married when I was young. I was 22, mm-hmm. which is young to me now, but within many Christian groups, that's actually a very average or for my community's older age. I had many friends get married, wow. 19, 20, 21. Wow. Mm-hmm. So this didn't seem young to me at the time. Mm-hmm. At the time I would have identified as some sort of progressive Christian. So I had unlearned many of 
the terrible messages I had received growing up around social and political structures, uh, specifically around different forms of civil rights. But what's interesting is that for me and for so many people, the purity culture pieces of our indoctrination tend to be the most difficult to actually dislodge. For me, I had this backpack that I thought I had emptied. I I would call it the evangelical backpack. I thought I had emptied it. I had even become really uh, passionate that the churches I would go to would be affirming of queer folks and have specific policies and statements around racial justice, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. while being pretty blind to the role of purity culture that was still deeply a part of my life when I got married, despite all these other changes. So like many people, I was totally unaware of the negative impact of purity culture until after I got married at 22. Mm -hmm. And then I was in a marriage with a lot of problems, Mm -hmm. even though my ex-husband and I had much love for each other. And I believe worked very, very hard to have a relationship that would be sustainable. Mm -hmm. We did go to sex therapy in Boston um, when we moved from Columbus to Boston, and we met a phenomenal sex therapist. I think about her often. She has changed my life for the better. Mm -hmm. Even though my ex-husband and I decided to get divorced, that was just an instrumental uh, part of my healing journey. And my former therapist was actually the one to suggest that I become trained in sexual health. So I was already a practicing therapist at the time. And it was one of the most healing therapeutic moments for her to say, if you wanted to become a sex therapist, you would be a great sex therapist. Mm, That's awesome. When So both of you experienced within your marriage, the more you've kind of learned about sexuality and the more you recognize the way that purity culture impacted you. Like what were some of those things that showed up, if you don't mind speaking about where before it was like a blind spot? Yeah, that's a great question. For me, a huge, a huge piece that I am still unlearning, but was more of a blind spot in my, my marriage before I got divorced was around the performance of gender and sexuality. Mm-hmm. So again, even though I had espoused all these different feminist values, I still had these ideas that even the sex therapy field, even secular fields sometimes uh, support that men are inherently more sexual than women. Mm -hmm. We have Mm -hmm. no scientific basis for that. Mm -hmm. Actually, all of our scientific data shows the opposite, but in and outside of the church, secular and religious structures still support that idea and Mm -hmm. prioritize the socially acceptable forms of arousal for men. So in my marriage, I, I really deferred to what I thought my spouse wanted Mm. and that didn't allow me to do any exploration on what pleasure was for me, either as an individual or a relational person, Mm -hmm. all parts of my sexuality were bifurcated Mm -hmm. uh, because I had no resources to support that on either a personal or marital kind of level. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
Another thing that we learn in purity culture that is both misogynist and misandrist is this idea that men are these I learned sexual aggressors. That's the that's the specific language I learned growing up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when my ex-husband uh, didn't want to have sex with me as much as I was told that he would want to have sex with me, I felt incredibly rejected. Right. And I can't speak for him. He's not here. I suspect that he didn't know how to access his own sexuality. But what happened is that I was cut off um, and continued to keep myself cut off from my own self, from my own humanity, and then also experienced this massive rejection um, Mm -hmm. because my partner didn't seem interested to me, or at the very least didn't communicate that to me. So there's still a lot of sensitivity around that. Yeah. Yeah. In answering, oh, go ahead, Kara, sorry. I was just saying like, you know, again, like I've been talking again so much about gender roles as I continue to research and do different things. And it's like you said, the whole aspect of men inherently being more sexual, also having more of the, you know, visual physical stimulation too. Like, I'm always like, what? I'm like, I feel like there's many women who also are visually stimulated, (laughs) you know, like things like that. And just how we still are reiterating this this narrative just even based on uh dress codes and stuff at you know my my daughter's school I'm like are we still doing this like really like like the dress code is so long for the girls and then it's like yeah. hardly anything for the guys I'm like what is happening why are we still in this space right I have phrases that I want to send to hell I've got a list of probably 15 <laughs> one of them um is the phrase men are visual creatures yeah. like I just I bristle when I hear that because Mm -hmm. not only is that, you know, inaccurate to make such a gendered statement because actually many men um, Mm -hmm. experience arousal in all kinds of ways that may or may not include visual stimuli, just like women. Uh, It also subjugates women to these creatures that exist to either be the object of appropriate desire in marriage or as um, we were talking about with another guest, these temptresses. Yeah, sure. uh, so, it, so the idea, the language of men are visual creatures, not only is it inaccurate, but it actually just continues to subjugate women into this mm-hmm. sexual objectification role and then keeps men stuck in this uh, predator role right. that uh, is is also deeply harmful and sure. hurtful. Mm-hmm. Which is to build on that, which is I found myself in a version of that um, in, in my marriage. Like mm-hmm. there was a lot of anxiety around sexuality, a lot, a lot uh, our, er, our early sexual experiences almost exclusively ended in panic attacks, mm. her having panic attacks. Mm. Uh, and Looking back, and, and and it's hard because I haven't actually had a conversation with her about this. Um, but looking back, um, I didn't have the language to understand that that's what was going on. Uh, mm. We would have some sort of sexual experience. She would begin shaking, crying, mm. apologizing. All I knew it to do at 21 was just like, hang on. Sure. Uh, hold, uh, hold her as tight as I could. Say, hey, we're good you're Mm -hmm. okay. We're okay. We Mm -hmm. didn't do anything bad. 
and, and, and just like hope I didn't make it worse. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and so I have a ton of, I have a ton of empathy and sadness for our uh, relationships. Like, like, like we were set up to fail early. Sure. Yeah. One of the hard ways though, that, you know, to get to your question about blind spots is that she and I, once we got married, both did a variety of things to avoid getting into those anxious spaces again. Mm -hmm. Uh, the way that I did it was uh, I would just kind of, we had a routine, uh, a weekly routine of, uh, sexual experience. Uh, we didn't talk about it. Mm -hmm. Um, but we just kind of knew I, I initiated in particular ways. Um, she kind of went with it, which feels horrible to say, Mm -hmm. um, these, Mm -hmm. these years later. Uh, and, and then she would, um, avoid moving into sexuality by, by kind of playing off of the men or sexual monsters, uh, trope, Jeremiah, like, like all you want is sex, which I'm like, I I want a lot more than sex, but, but, (laughs) but also like feeling some, some amount of shame, um, connected, connected with that too. Um, so the, um, the blind spot really got exposed, as I mentioned earlier, when I started uh, studying sexuality and specifically um, our, I think it was our first class, even uh, we were talking about sexual ethics mm-hmm. and at the root of sexual ethics is consent. Mm-hmm. And the group is talking about consent and about 10 minutes into the conversation, I just blacked out and thinking, oh shit, I have been doing this all wrong. Mm. And uh, like there, there hasn't been a form of, of conversation. There hasn't been a process for dialogue went back talked with my ex about it apologized she had a weird response she's like oh it's okay to which I was like are you sure about that <laughs> yeah. um and Let's then, and a then little more. Moved, yeah. <laughs> and then we moved into a different kind a different uh format for avoiding sexuality yeah um I I avoided sexuality the final year and a half two years of the marriage like pretty exclusively mm-hmm. um and um and then, yeah, and, and then when I did uh, address sexuality, the, the panic attacks came back. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, 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 so the question about blind spots is really good. I also think that it's important to understand how the messaging around sexuality mm-hmm. uh, from the church really fucks with relationships. Yeah, I feel really like sets people up to fail. Yeah, and I think that is what if I could like run around with like poster board or something or like a billboard to pass around, it has to do with that because I feel like church communities, and I want to say like so many of them kind of um, present these kind of themes. Right. And I think about even within, you know, when we went to seminary and different things, like you couldn't move in with your romantic partner, right? Like you had to have a committed marital relationship in order that you can do these things. And so it's like one of the things that I saw, like even at my college, right? They call it like the senior scramble because people didn't, people were having the hormones and they wanted to have sex and they had desires, but felt like they couldn't unless they were married. And so like it was a phenomenon called senior scramble because all of a sudden all these people would be getting engaged yep. and there was all these marriages. And then even in seminary, it was like, people were like getting married <laughs> to like live with their partners and doing all these things. And 
like looking back, I was like the church and their, and the fact that we have this, this little thing that says you have to be married to experience sex and like relationships need to look like this is actually, again, setting us up for failure and like, and putting a wedge, I think, and what could be real intimacy and connection because we're not even given the chance to discover what that is. Absolutely. And so then we just like put ourselves into the game because that's what the expectation is. And then we end up losing, I don't want to say like losing the game, but it's like, um, we all become disillusioned. We're like, well, wait a minute. This is not what I was told. (laughs) This is not as how I was thought this was going to play out or what this was going to be. Absolutely. And for me, when, when I did get divorced, uh, for a period of time, I did not have contact with family members and I had many people, uh, explicitly or in more subtle ways, communicate judgment and rejection. Mm. And what was so hurtful to me and what is still hurtful is that the very structures and people who set me up to fail by giving me either no education or education that was simply false about sexuality, but also about relationships in general. And the same people who told me the only way I could experience this without sin was to get married. They were then the same people to shame me when, when that didn't work. And Mm -hmm. when I was at a low, deeply sad part in my life, the kindness that Jeremiah, you referenced the kindness that I was taught growing up was, was nowhere for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I keep thinking as you guys are talking, I literally just keep seeing like dolls, (laughs) you know, like, I know this seems weird. Like, so maybe it's because I've been watching the Barbie movie too much, but Ah. I feel like, you know, even in the way that we describe, it's like we make people these, like, um, I want to say like 2D figures. So maybe like these paper dolls or something. Yeah. And it's like, we're all just like picking each other up and then just kind of like moving parts and things like this and not looking at the dimensions that each of us have. I don't know mm-hmm. why I said this or if it makes any sense, but it's just, it does make sense. just see like, yeah. we're like these little dolls to be played with and that we're not given the sense of agency or autonomy. And it's like, oh, if you come in here and if you act this way, as I'm like moving my hands, like I have dolls, you will be rewarded. <laughs> you will yeah. have the kindness and the belonging that you need. But if you move outside of that, and take on right. humanity <laughs> and live into the fullness of who you are, we're not going to give you that sense of belonging. And that's like really like how I am like seeing this in terms of how we play out gender roles and how we play out these yeah. ways of being in church spaces and things like that. Yeah. yeah. And and when I got married before I found the great sex therapist, I was in a very, very dark space. And some people intuitively understand that. Some people don't. And some people who don't understand might say, well, but the rest of your relationship was good. It's just sex, right? 
But for me, as a woman who grew up not just in purity culture within the church, but in the 90s and the 2000s, I learned that my entire worth as a human being was in my body and my sexuality. So when I got married and I hated sex and Mm -hmm. my husband didn't appear interested in me and or didn't know how to communicate that to me, that communicated that my entire worth was gone. Was gone. I didn't yep. have I didn't have anything anymore. Mm-hmm. And at the time when I got to when I got married, there were very few resources around deconstruction. Mm-hmm. Um, there were very few resources about uh what we you know, what, what all three of us study. And I had a friend in Columbus at the time who was going through something similar and we would take long walks like miles and miles and miles. And looking back, what we were doing is like, we were evaluating like the carnage of our Jenga piles Mm. and we didn't have anyone else. All the other people in our lives were a part of these church communities that held very specific values around religion and relationships and sexuality. And so we were doing this thing that is hard to do with the support that's available today. Deconstruction is hard, even with the resources that we have available now. And at the time, it was just so lonely to be almost exclusively by myself in this journey and to not understand that my entire worth was shattered and not have any language for it. Mm. Yes. And I feel like that is oh, the 90s and 2000s, right? It's like... <laughs> oh, yeah. We talk about that a lot on our podcast as well, how purity culture influenced pop culture in the 90s oh, and 2000s yes. and pop yeah. culture influenced purity culture. Yeah, I just... So I just had a... a podcast too, where we were talking about body, uh, reclaiming body trust and things and how I have as a parent, the most shame around the fact that I talk negatively about my body and don't want to, but it's because of what you just said that I am deconstructing this notion Mm of I'm no longer this, this dancer who had this body who even at that time wasn't good enough. You know, that's why like we love that monologue in the Barbie movie because it feels like you were never good enough, right? Yeah. And so, and then it made me feel like, well, then what is my worth now when I'm not like this? And it's like learning how to, you know, love yourself in a way that you haven't given been given the road the roadmap to love yourself. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like of that. course. Yeah. And we're actually thinking about doing a series on uh bodies in the 90s and 2000s. If we do, mm-hmm. we'd love to have you come back. Um <laughs> and the church um the church likes to set itself up as being so countercultural. What I learned about my body and what I learned about gender, what I learned about sexuality in the church is almost exactly what I learned outside of the church. Oh yeah. I didn't learn anything different. So especially for folks who grew up in the height of purity culture, especially women and people with vulvas, um, they didn't get a break. Um, I don't know. I don't know what would have been different if I had grown up outside of uh, the (laughs) church. What I do know is that I have a lot of clients with similar challenges Mm -hmm. who didn't go to church. So we need to, as a culture and as a community and sex therapists need to reckon with 
what did the nineties and two thousands do yeah. to folks and how has that impacted their relationships, their sexuality yeah. and their parenting? Um, yeah, we, we say to, to people, you don't have to have grown up in the church to have been fucked over by purity culture. Yeah, no, you know, yeah, it, it was everywhere. an entire generation at least. Yeah. Well, I think even, but even ahead of that, like I do feel, I mean, you can see in, I think attitudes with our parents and stuff, the way that, I mean, some of that, you know, stems from, it's the founding of, you know, American culture, (laughs) like in a sense, right? Like it it goes really far back, but it feels like with the emergence again of like AIDS, then it was like, well, now we're going to panic and all this stuff happens again. But even like what you said with the countercultural, I kept saying in my head, I was like, Jesus was countercultural. Yes. (laughs) Church is not (laughs) right. Like, but they think they are, like you said, and that's like the thing where I feel like this is where so many of us like miss the mark, like looking at, in my opinion, as a Christian, what Jesus was trying to do. And we're just like, we're going to still not do that. (laughs) Yeah. I'm, I'm not a biblical yeah. scholar. I, mm-hmm. I mean, you've gone to seminary and Jeremiah, um, has a have an undergraduate degree, in, in a, ministry. Yeah. So <laughs> I would be the least qualified person, but I grew up in a church community that took the Bible. And when I say the Bible, the translations that we have, right. which is not the Bible literally. And what's so interesting is the story that I think about a lot is the story about Jesus with the woman at the well. And if anyone yeah. is listening to this and don't know this, that would be surprising. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably know the story, but Jesus encounters this woman who was caught in adultery and, you know, threatened with stoning. And Jesus literally says to her, I don't condemn you. And so I find it so interesting and funny that this is a story in which we have a literal example from Jesus about quote unquote sexual sin. Mm -hmm. And that is not what I learned in church happens for folks, especially women who Mm -hmm. sexually sin. I've got a lot of data about um, women excluded, shamed, and like driven to psychiatric wards. And so it's, and and I'm not exaggerating when I say that. Um, So it's just fascinating to, um, to see the way that uh, the church can misuse and and weaponize um, mm-hmm. Jesus. Yeah. I mean, that's on, yes, like we could spend hours. <laughs> right. So my question for you guys then, then as a couple who are in a partnership and are doing the same profession, what have you learned the most from one another? And how, then how do you care for yourselves? Yeah. I've learned a lot from Julia. Well, first of all, a couple of things. This was my relationship, Julia, with you was the relationship after my marriage. And so this is the relationship in which I learned all sorts of things, hmm. uh, how to how to talk about sexuality, for instance, mm-hmm. how to resolve conflict, how, how to engage in conflict in, in an effective way. Um, so, so there's all sorts of of stuff that I've uh, learned on the fly that you and I have picked up together, and I'm super thankful, Julia, for your for your patience, for your kindness in, in my like process of picking some of this up. I think the thing that stands out to me the most is I've learned, Julia, a lot from you about transitions and about the importance mm-hmm. of transitions. So, 
for example, let's say you and I make an agreement to, um, let's say that you and I make an agreement to have sex, that the conversation and, and what's on the docket isn't just about like, what are we going to do sexually? It's about what's going to lead up into it and, and what's going to lead up into it, like the two, three, four hours prior um, and how, um, you know, what do you need? I've been thinking about also what do I need kind of leading into that. And then also what are we going to do the two, three, four hours, or in our case, day or two kind of after that, mm -hmm. you know, so that a sexual experience, and I'm using sex as an example, right? Sure. This could also be true for hiking. This could be true for <clears throat> any number of things that we love to do together, that the experience is not just about the experience, but it's everything that leads up to it. And it's everything that follows it. Mm -hmm. um, so, so thinking you've helped me to think more about, um, to be more intentional about time and to change my relationship with time. I can be pretty, um, I, I can be pretty narrow-minded when it comes to time. Um, mm -hmm. and just thinking about, okay, like what's the next five minutes in, in front of me? Um, you've helped me kind of expand that and to also think more, more contextually, and uh, uh, I, I think involve and invite a lot more depth into my life. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks. We didn't rehearse this. So. I know. I was like, that was nicely said. And <laughs> like, as someone listening, I was like, oh, that's very nice. Yeah, that's very kind. Thanks. So, I mean, similarly to you, Jeremiah, um, this relationship has given me space to practice what I learned, to practice what I didn't learn yeah. growing up in a fundamentalist context. Mm -hmm. So as I did couples therapy with my ex-husband, I was able to start practicing new ways of being in relationship, but that was practice that occurred after years of bad practice. Yeah not for any fault of mine or my ex-husband, but because we didn't have tools and resources. So this is the first relationship where I'm practicing those new values from scratch. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and anytime we practice something new from scratch, it's a little bit messy. Little messy. Yep. And so <laughs> most importantly, I think the relationship has given me space to practice for it to be messy and then to know that it's going to be okay. Mm. Uh, because church culture taught me uh, that relationships can't really be messy. Yeah. That you avoid yeah. conflict yeah. Yeah. and that they just have to be picture perfect. Mm -hmm. And I'm thankful for that. On more of a, what did I learn from you level? What I have learned is that I can be, I can be more direct and I can engage conflict in a more proactive kind of way. Yeah. I am someone who is just naturally and probably by socialization more diplomatic. Part of that is by gender. Part of that is my dad is actually a fairly diplomatic person too. So I think mm -hmm. that even beyond gender, I have some other like forces that have shaped that in me. And I like that about myself. Mm -hmm. And I've been able to learn from you that I can move into something difficult and I don't necessarily need to give 29 caveats or set up the massive entire contextual yeah. Yeah. Um, oh my gosh. components that are so right? important to me. And so I'm, even as I'm talking, hearing you talk, I'm thinking, oh, all of that context and transition work that's so important to me. I'm so glad that you've learned from it. And I think I'm learning that uh, I can be 
bold enough to to move a little bit um more into the middle yeah and I didn't learn that as a woman um Mm -hmm. that I could be direct that I could be blunt that I always had to kind of caveat or set things up or defer or say Mm -hmm. but if you've got a different perspective that's fine and sometimes it is but sometimes it isn't and I'm glad that you're allowing me to like stretch what I know of gender in that way thanks that's so funny because I I actually just had like this um, adult Sunday school lesson. It was on actually they did Barbie theology. <laughs> it was, love it. Oh, love it. And it was wonderful. And um, the female pastor at our church is brilliant. And she was talking about how women have to use weak language in order to be heard. Uh-huh. So saying like setting right. things up, being That's saying right. like, okay, so because of da-da-da, like over explaining instead of being able to be direct, because when we use the weak language, that's when we're heard. When we oftentimes in our culture, when we try to be more direct, that's when people, we don't get what we need, right? But And that's and Kara, I'm glad that you said that because that's, that's actually one of the things that I'm unlearning is okay, yeah. that, you know, as a result of women kind of learning that, that use your language, weak language, uh, the mm-hmm. caveats, mm-hmm. um, kind of the, the language that I was going to use was, um, you know, I was taught in these, these different ways that, that, that women are fragile yeah, and that as a result of that fragility, men need to like come in and like take over. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm having to do a lot of work to, to, to not do that, to trust mm-hmm. Julia, that in times that you are in distress, um, that, that you're going to be okay. That like, you don't need me to come in with like my firefighter suit and just like <laughs> hose away the fires of, of distress, uh, which I'm quite good at. And which also sucks for the relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, it pisses you off understandably. Um, and, and it also keeps me kind of stuck in these messages around masculinity that I don't really want to work for me anymore either. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, right. I'm glad you got, gave that example though, Kara, yeah. because it's a real double bind because mm-hmm. like you said, when women do risk being more direct and blunt, sometimes the result is that you lose. Right. Um, and I'm thankful that in this relationship, I can practice that and mm-hmm. win, yeah. like not win the yeah. argument, but like win as a human being and win as a relationship. Yeah, yeah. But I right. lost a really significant relationship this year with a man because I was direct with him. Yeah. Mm. And that was one of the first time that I like refused um, to back down and being the diplomatic person that I am, like, I don't refuse to back down unless, unless it's really bad (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, because Mm -hmm. I don't think I will really ever let go of my diplomacy. And so there's also some consequences to relearning and redoing gender, but sometimes you'll have like the exciting moments where you succeed um, and then other times you'll lose. Yeah. Well, and I think you guys said it well, when you talked about, you know, it's in, and this is what I say, like in all my workshops, you know, especially related to church culture, I'm like, it's in relationships where we learn. And so that's where it is like by default going to be messy. That's and right. so the fact that we have these expectations of that, we have to have perfection is already destroying us. And so like creating space for that mess and knowing, I'm like, but also understanding that sometimes we're going to hurt each other, you know, and, 
And so this is also like where you talked about where people didn't meet you with kindness and met you with shame. It's when we stop meeting people out of like care and support and meet them with shame yeah. is when we all stop growing. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. like that's when we're, and then it's like, okay, well then what's the point, right? And so it's knowing how I think what you all are doing of practicing and getting into the mess and being okay with that is what makes us better. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. And couples therapy is all about that. Right. Yeah. So how do you, like, if people are afraid, right? Because I think there's this, also this, this mentality that it can be scary to go to couples therapy, right? Like, Mm because you do have to be, mirrors will be shown to you in a sense of like how you are. And um, there are things you have to face. So how do you help people make, take that step to get to therapy? And then like, you as sex therapists, like what do you guys even do in your practices to create a space where people can bring this mess and sort through it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, normalizing and destigmatizing conflict, especially for evangelical folks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And for many people, conflict will probably continue to be scary. Sometimes conflict, depending on the nature of it, is inherently scary. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's not. Mm-hmm. And being able to engage conflict is is really healthy. And I will often tell clients, especially if I know they come from a restrictive environment, I will say, I am far more concerned about the couples who come in saying that they don't fight than the yeah. couples who can come in and say, we'd like to fight better, or we're fighting and we're having a hard time. (laughs) Of course we're having a hard time because relationships are messy and difficult Mm -hmm. and we all need some support. So that would be my first, uh, my first thing to normalize, destigmatize, and actually say the healthiest couples are the couples who can come to therapy and have a good fight in the presence of a therapist who will support them. Yeah. That's cool. Well said. I would also add Kara that in couples therapy, the individual is not the client. Um, the the relationship dynamic is the and, and 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 the mm-hmm. the way that two people communicate and the patterns around communication. That's what we're working towards. Um, so so much of of evangelical Christianity, uh, to use language that you used earlier, is rooted in shame. Is rooted mm-hmm. in criticism and mm-hmm. criticism of the individual specifically. Right. Um, and I think that a lot of folks uh dodge or, or or are anxious about couples therapy because they're they're afraid that not only will a professional like say hey what the hell's wrong with you but they'll mm-hmm. do it in the presence of their partner and create a two against one right right and, yeah. and so that's and and unfortunately there are people who work with with couples who do that um they are not real couples therapists. <laughs> um, You're like, leave core, that space. <laughs> ab- absolutely. I'm saying this as, as like a public service announcement. Um, like, like if you are in couples therapy and a couples therapist is not invested in working on the dynamic, uh, mm-hmm. the way that the two of you communicate and all the features of that, the nonverbal communications, the time, your relationships with space, all of that. If the couples therapist is not invested in that and if they're interested in kind of pinning it on one person or the other person find someone new right yeah because I do think like again that's another narrative that we have had it's like 
where we put blame on one person of how things are, but it's, it is the partnership and how it's functioning. It like takes yeah. two of where these, you know, cause we all bring our stuff and then that stuff is just, you know, dancing around each other. I don't know how to say it, but that's right. Yeah. That makes sense. That's right. Yeah. So the evangelical church, I would say is still making a lot of noise around purity culture and gender roles, as we've been seeing <laughs> things playing out politically and then things playing out just culturally. Um, so what is it that as someone, as, as two individuals who are a part of that church and it feels like it's still not changing, what would you say to them? Yeah. Well, it isn't changing. And as a sex therapist <laughs> who works within, um, as a sex therapist outside of formal religious structures who works with religious folks, I, I do my homework. So mm -hmm. I am, I am up to date on the most relevant voices in Christian culture around sexuality and religion. I read their books. I listen she to their podcasts. podcasts. It's um, And what I am learning, learning in quotes um, from those folks today is exactly what I learned when I was nine, 10 and 11 years old. Oh, the geez. dominant messages mm -hmm. have either not changed or are just cloaked in other Repackaged, language. Yeah. So mm -hmm. what, and I, I really liked this question because you framed it as the evangelical church is still making a lot of noise and they are. Mm -hmm. And what I would say is, okay, anybody who grows up in purity culture and in with these and in a fundamentalist or high control religious context, we know what you think about sexuality and relationships. We have read the books. We have gone to the youth group retreats. We have written journals and letters to our future husbands. Like we know, <laughs> and we could say it in our sleep. <laughs> and what I would want is to, in a kind way, but mm -hmm. a firm way, mm -hmm. not necessarily even a diplomatic way, challenge folks in those communities to have a conversation in which you can talk with someone who has expressed hurt from mm -hmm. purity culture and have a conversation in which at no point do you insert scripture, your perspective, mm -hmm a Bible verse, a book, or anything else, because I can guarantee that that person already knows that. Right. And the evangelical church, along with Mormon and Pentecostal groups as well, have not done a good job listening. They have seen mm. folks like myself or Jeremiah stray, that's their language, stray from the church. And rather than asking us about their experience, they have shamed me and other folks mm -hmm. um, for, for breaking their rules. So I would love the noise to just settle down a little bit mm -hmm. so that my clients could tell their stories and right. actually have them received without any sort of agenda to evangelize to them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I would go ahead. You go ahead first. Oh, just as you were talking, Julia, I was chuckling to myself uh, <laughs> because you and I are, are are switching gender roles here. You are taking the more like assertive, like cut this shit out. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm going to take a more like empathetic approach here. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, I'm thinking, Kara, about this from the, um, from two perspectives. Like one, like 
what do we gain by holding on to gender roles? And, and, and we can talk about patriarchy. We can talk about control. All that's important to talk about. Mm-hmm. It's also important to talk about eschatology, mm-hmm. uh, meaning mm-hmm. heaven and hell. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and how do we get to heaven? How do we avoid hell? Which is deeply rooted in, in, in evangelical thought. And one of the ways to do that is, is, is to simplify, is to simplify the world. Mm, Take yeah. out all of the, the different variables that happen uh, so that it's easier to kind of live our lives in a neat, tidy box so right. that we can convince ourselves that we're in, good, in God's good graces. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways over the centuries that that's happened is through, is through uh, gender delineations, mm-hmm. quote, right. gender roles mm-hmm. uh, that I was referring to earlier. And so, so I have some empathy that the idea of gender roles is an attempt to simplify mm-hmm. a really fearful, fear-driven experience mm-hmm. of living in a world where God is wrathful, like yeah, Yahweh's a dick. Uh, you don't know if he's going to invite you into heaven or hell. Uh, mm-hmm. Grace aside, uh, for, from this, even with grace-based uh, denominations, and so it makes sense that you know in that fear-based paradigm mm-hmm. that they're going to do that 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 you're going to create whatever we can to create as like rigid as narrow of, of expectations as we can uh, right. to be able to check those boxes. So what I would say then is to answer your question is 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 to think about this from the perspective of math mm. that um, when we are working with gender roles as kind of the foundation of how to do relationships, we're really limiting people. We're really limiting people to one option mm-hmm. uh, based on uh, on on their genitalia. Uh, and a specific set of of, of characteristics of personality traits uh, in order to you know in, in order to match it in order to like be appealing to God men have to be aggressive uh, women mm-hmm. are, are are demure or passive those submissive, things Jeremiah. excuse submissive. me submissive <laughs> that was a big that was like one of the biggest words in my church growing up submissive. yeah no that's true yeah. submissive, submissive yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. um and, and and like if you happen to to be someone who who fits in that who is straight who 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 isn't uh, attracted romantically or sexually to people of the same gender, um, and and if you happen to find someone that kind of fits into those uh, kind of characterological traits of mm-hmm. uh, men being aggressive, uh, women being submissive is that is that the word we're using mm-hmm. submissive. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I guess it works for you, but, but the problem yeah. is there's so much variance in right. personality, uh, in, in, in characteristics, in interests, mm-hmm. uh, in, in ways that, that, that desire, uh, comes about relationships with time, relationships with space, mm-hmm. that the more that you place, the more that you place expectations of, like rigid practices of yeah uh, masculinity femininity actually the more anxiety that you're causing right yeah because then it's like 
there can't, I mean, it feels like you, you are limiting the options for yourself. It's like you, Absolutely. especially when you're, when you feel something right. different and you're like, but wait, you know, it does, it creates more anxiety. I feel like it could cre creates more depression. Yeah. And then I feel like what it does is it creates resentment. Sure. You sure. know, I, I mean, like, you know, there's this, That's right. I, I just feel like there, and I think this is what I was like experiencing as I started deconstructing. It was like, I feel like there was this part of me that was inside of myself and it was just like this fingernail, just kind of like scratching the inside me like, uh, Hey, uh, <laughs> like I just felt a constant gnawing or, you know, just unsettled sensation inside of me where I'm like, why does this not feel right? You know, like yeah. so many of it, I was like, this doesn't, this doesn't feel like the truth I was told. I am not feeling good about me. I am not feeling good about, you know, these said relationships, you know? And so it was just like this constant nagging that I was feeling. And I well, think and it's- Kara, yeah. you, you, I'm so sorry. Finish no, go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. You used the, this word resentment to mm -hmm. describe that kind of constant nagging feeling that- mm -hmm some part of me doesn't fit within the confines of, of gender expectations. And one of the key things about resentment is resentment is not just anger about that. Mm -hmm. Resentment is anger that the system doesn't allow you to talk about, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that the system doesn't allow you to express. Mm -hmm. So then like, so, so then Kara, I, I'd be curious to ask you as you're experiencing that kind of gnawing and clawing, what are your options for exploring that and communicating that and talking about that with other people? Yeah. What are my options now? Or, 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 or as you were, then. when you were growing up. Yeah, oh yeah. Well, that. I didn't, I didn't, I feel like I didn't have the language for it. Right. Like yeah. I was like, what does right. this mean? Um, yeah. And, and it's like one of those things where I look back at my journals as we do and we look back and I, I just feel sadness for, what I was writing and where I, my mindset was yeah. at that point. And you're like, Oh my gosh. And, and then there's that part of like, who would I be now? You know, but you also recognize, okay, we all go through these journeys or whatever, but there's just a sense of unknowing and um, of needing to, to be good. That whole aspect of, I need to be good um, at then the loss of living into your authenticity right yeah and I think yeah. that's the place where I think people have resentment but more so like just deep resounding grief for sure there is so much grief and mm -hmm. I hope this is okay to say because it's a different question the question before mm -hmm. um, what you asked about the evangelical church making noise is in your work as a sex therapist and doing the podcast what have you come to know as truth and yeah. what I was reflecting on that today my answer is a little bit dark um, people think that I'm like far more optimistic than I am <laughs> because of my presentation. I think we had discussed this. Oh, you, but I remember when we interviewed you on our podcast, we were talking about Harry Potter because you have Harry Potter in the background. And I'm yeah. like, whenever I take the test, I'm Slytherin or Gryffindor and people would never expect me as a Slytherin if they met me, which is why I would be an even greater Slytherin because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I've got like a real connection to the dark. But mm -hmm. as I was reflecting on that question, my, my answer was pretty dark, but I think it's important because when I, I, uh, 
before I started the process of deconstruction, I had no idea how harmful my experiences were in my life. And then like you, I had that gnawing, gnawing, terrible experience. And then I walked hundreds of miles around Columbus, not knowing that my world was falling apart. Mm-hmm. And then I went to therapy and initially, and even after finishing sex therapy, I remember thinking, okay, well, I'm a highly sensitive person. And so I just like extra internalized these messages, like, you know, because of my sensitivity or because of these other parts of my personality or because of my origin experiences, this is extra hard for me. Right. And then what I've learned is, and what I know to be true is that my story actually isn't all that unique and the Mm. devastation Mm -hmm. and the heartbreak and the grief that is still deeply present in my life today at varying degrees is actually just so true of more than an entire generation of people. And, And to be also dark, I have spent way too much money in my own therapy and I have made way too much money in therapy helping folks with a similar journey as mine. And so I wish that I had known that I wasn't alone. And Mm. what I would want people to know is that you're not making up the hurt, the pain, the devastation, or the trauma. You are not making it up. That grief is deep and that grief is real and you didn't cause it. Right. And that it is, it can be a really, really healing experience. Mm-hmm. to be able to talk about that grief and to name that grief, especially mm-hmm. when you name that grief with someone who uh, who supports you, who loves you, who you trust, who has has your best interest at heart. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and I think that that can be one of the hard things about couples therapy to go back to the question you asked earlier, uh, but it can also be an incredibly rich and rewarding thing. Yeah. And I've said this on other podcasts and in like all of these workshops I do, I kind of when people get to that point where we open up the space to talk about this, like you said, it's like, I'm not alone. I call it like the great exhale because it's like, well, I mean, that's what you hear. Like when you get to a space and we name something and multiple people in the room have felt it, you just hear. And it's like, finally, it's like a person is a, is getting, is allowing themselves to feel that and allowing it to breathe into a space Right. And we're like, and here we are. (laughs) And that gets us, Mm -hmm. and that gets us out of the, um, out of the negative communication patterns that can come with resentment. Right. Because in order to have resentment, you also have to have secrets. Right. You also have to have things that aren't talked about. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. That's interesting. I don't think I've heard that before, that if you have resentment, you have secrets. Well, there you go. I learn all or the time. unspoken or things. unspoken things. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Things we're holding on to that we're not able to let go yeah. of yet. That's right. Necessarily. So when people are learning how to understand their sexuality, especially with you all and the work that you do, what are some of the things you advise them to do? Because it often can be scary when we open ourselves up, but it also can be freeing. So what are some of the things that you have said? Yeah. One of the things, two answers to that question. The first one is to zoom out and to think not just about pleasure from the perspective of genital pleasure, 
but mm-hmm. to think about pleasure from a more holistic uh, perspective mm-hmm. and thinking about just in general, what are the things that give that, that, um, that I do, that I have access to that can give me pleasure, mm-hmm. um, ways I can engage my body, uh, things I can, um, things I can listen to, things I can see, uh, ways I can engage my senses and to give yourself and, and, and to create spaces with, within your, uh, partnership for those of you in relationships to, to do that relationally, to do those things together. So for me and Julia, um, a lot of it is hiking. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, that, that's something that gives me that, that, that I think gives you pleasure. Uh, <laughs> don't want to speak for you, but, um, but, but, but starting with that and then being able to zoom in to the, the, the physical, mm-hmm. um, the, um, physical pleasure, the genital pleasure. I think that that's such an important process, mm-hmm. um, especially for, uh, folks in, uh, evangelical and Mormon and Pentecostal communities who have been taught to like completely divorce themselves from all kinds of pleasure. Mm-hmm. Uh, you are selfish. If you do these things for yourself, all those types of things. Mm-hmm. The second thing that I would encourage about the process, just setting realistic expectations is that this is slow. Yeah. Yeah. This mm-hmm. is a slow process that's that's going to take time. Mm-hmm. Um, everything from the sexual experience itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so moving out of the narrative that, that sexuality has to be spontaneous. I think that that's easily a top three or four most dangerous message um, yes. around sexuality. The idea that sexuality has to be spontaneous, has to just appear out of nowhere. Um, that, that, that you can move into a sexual experience to take whatever time you need to do. Uh, and also that you can, um, remembering that the conversations that you have over sexuality, like you can come back to them. Mm-hmm. You don't have to tackle everything at once. Mm-hmm. You know, your, your, your bodies are evolving, your interests are evolving, your desires are evolving. So, so really setting the expectations that this is going to be a slower process than you think it's going to be. Right. And that's great. That's fantastic. Slow is not a bad word. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So but I feel, and I feel though, and this is like kind of going back from when we were talking before we got on about our sabbatical and what I learned about slowness and the American culture. I think part of the issue we have too is, is we're always so hurried. We're in a hurry <laughs> constantly, mm-hmm. you know, and then also, um, we're so performance based, sure. and so it inhibits. And it, yeah. mm-hmm, it inhibits the way we enter in. That's right. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Those would be the two items that I would say as well. And folks from uh, a variety of evangelical communities can probably relate to. Oh, I was told no to sex, but I was also told pleasure in general is bad. So yeah. for me. Mm-hmm. In and outside of church, there was a lot of messages about pleasure, right? We suppress pleasure with food. We suppress pleasure yeah, with right. sleep. We suppress pleasure with play, with rest, with beautiful things, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. All kinds of pleasure for me was demonized, not just sexuality. So I like the idea of, of finding pleasure and finding something pleasurable every single day. If you can find a good sex therapist- yeah. That's really important. It's important for 
the expertise, but I would also say whether you're going as a couple, if you're partnered or you're going as an individual, therapy is important because to go back to the darkness, it can sometimes feel really hopeless and you need to have someone who can hold hope for you when you don't have the capacity. Because I also think it's a myth and actually a really harmful myth that we should or even could be hopeful all the time. Like life is way too hard for that. Mm-hmm. So if you have a good therapeutic relationship, like that is someone who can say, okay, today is a hopeless day. We don't actually need to change that, but like, I'm going to hold on to the hope for you mm-hmm. like while you grieve. Yeah, that's great. I agree. I feel, yes. I'm just going to say yes. <laughs> There's so much. So I, we're coming to time. And so I wanted to ask you, as I do all my guests, what story are you reframing today? You want to start? I'm thinking about Carol, what story are you reframing today? And one of the, one of the things that, so I am a pretty motivated, driven, like pretty classic Enneagram three type person. Mm -hmm. Um, so, um, I love a good plan. I love a good system. Um, I, I personally speaking, I'm pretty good at like developing systems on the fly. One of the things Julia I've learned from you is, is the importance of being intentional about developing systems Mm. and, and not like building systems, like in the middle of like whatever it is that I'm doing, uh, but like (laughs) actually sitting down and like developing and designing a blueprint for instance. Uh, which I think you and I have done really well in the last few months. And uh, one of the um, one of the stories that I am reframing is uh, even with those systems um, and the development of those systems, when when things come along that um, that take you out, that 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 kind of mess with the systems uh, and, and the structures of the systems, like I'm learning that, I can, I can still be okay mm. that I don't have to like flip out <laughs> mm-hmm. or, um, um, yeah, I think that my relationship with, uh, my relationship with control is something that I'm learning how to, how, how to reframe mm. cool, and being, you. being a little bit more okay with some of the chaos that comes along. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I thought about this question because you emailed, but as we've been talking, I've had six different answers <laughs> to the question, but I'll, I'll only pick one. Working in sexual health is somewhat of a misunderstood career. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people, when you say that you are a sexual health educator or you're a sex therapist, which I usually don't say for many reasons, people have a lot of ideas, people have a lot of opinions, and many people within evangelical and a variety of Christian sects uh, have a lot of fear and have a lot of anger and have a lot of shame that they direct towards me. And as I'm anticipating seeing some family in the next month, I'm I'm very aware that as the sexual health professional, as the divorced person, as the non-church attending person, I am very much like the black sheep within my family. Hmm. And there is a part of that narrative that I cannot control. 
that is really outside of my sphere of influence. But I'm thinking today, and I don't have an answer, but what what do I want that story to be? So my Mm -hmm. family can have the story that I am the black sheep of the family and they will probably hold on to that or members of my family will hold on to that. I'm going to choose a different narrative and I haven't decided which one that is, but Mm -hmm. I can have a different title to that story. Yeah. So it's both of you are kind of um, releasing control of some sort in some way. It sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. That is a, that is a perpetual thing. I I am afraid, but yes. Yes. Well, I enjoyed the two of you so much. And I love our conversations. (laughs) Yeah. I just really appreciate you coming on the show. And um, how can people find your podcast and, or reach out to you if they're interested in therapy, especially in the Massachusetts area, correct? That's where you're licensed. That's right. Yeah. We are licensed in Massachusetts. Both of us are certified (laughs) sex therapists. so we both work with couples um, and and individuals uh, and families. We um, our podcast, Sex Evangelicals, the sex education the church didn't want you to have, mm-hmm. uh, can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, and then we uh, also uh, are on Instagram and Threads at Sex Evangelicals. Uh, mm. So if you want to uh, reach out to us, you can reach out to us on uh, one of those channels or email or email us sexvangelicals <laughs> at gmail.com. Did awesome. I get everything, Julia? Yes. Uh, I, I let Jeremiah do all the advertising <laughs> for us. <laughs> That's great. Well, thank you so much. Yes. Thanks thank you. So much,